good to see you. Welcome. I'm looking at the clock back there. This will be fun. Um, let's pray and we'll get going. Father, thank you for, uh, again, this outstanding and humbling privilege that we have to be called by you uh, into this place together with people who are learning what it means to be changed by your grace and for your glory and for our joy. And, and we thank you for the privilege that we have to do that together and to be called your people. Uh, and to learn more about who you are, and to submit ourselves to what you have said about yourself. And we ask that that is the very attitude that we would have this morning, that your spirit would come and, and, w- and would compel us and engage us and transform us and enable us to submit ourselves and our souls to your word, that we might be changed for your glory and our joy into the likeness and image of your son. We do this that the name of Jesus Christ would be made much of in the city of Richmond and beyond, in all the places that you would send Redemption Hill. We don't do this that we would be made much of, but that you would be made much of. And so we ask that you would do that in the words that we speak, in the songs that we sing, and the times that we have together this morning. Amen. If you've got your Bibles, open them to the book of Romans, chapter 3, verse 19. Romans three nineteen. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, big book, Romans, next book. Uh, Start at Matthew, go right, you'll get to Romans. And as you're going to Romans 3, verse 19, I'm going to ask you a question, and then we're going to give a brief brief flyover of Romans 1 and 2 so you can figure out what's happening in chapter 3, verse 19, and, and why we're going there. So let me ask you this question as we continue on in our new series about the, the unsearchable riches of Christ, the riches of the gospel, the reality of what is ours to treasure and to be changed by, the riches that we should hold on to and cling to, redefined in a way that the culture does not define them. As we begin to unpack these unsearchable riches over the next few weeks, let me ask you this question. If you were to take a moment, five, ten, you could probably do it in two seconds, and think, what is the greatest problem facing me in my life right now, what would it be? Don't think too hard. What comes to your mind? For some, it would be, obviously, finances. For some, it would be relationships. For some, it would be jobs. For some, it would be family. Uh, the list is probably innumerable. But in all honesty, and I won't, I, I should ask you to raise your hands, but I won't. Um, I won't ask you to raise your hands. How many people answered that question instinctively that the greatest problem that I face in my life is God? How many have ever thought of God as the greatest problem with which they have to deal. I mean, we come into these places, and and whether it's Redemption Hill or somewhere else, with the expectation that we're going to figure out how to fix all of our problems, and that God is the answer, when in fact He really is. But have you ever thought that He's the answer to the problem that He Himself actually creates? This is what Paul's going to actually unpack in Romans, the first three chapters of Romans, and I'm going to let him speak for himself. But to get there, I'm going to give you a flyover of where he's going in chapter 1 and chapter 2 to get to chapter 3, verse 19. In Romans chapter 1, after introducing himself and, and sharing his excitement for this church in Rome and sharing his anticipation to come and to preach the gospel to this church in Rome because of the outbreak of the gospel there and the potential that Paul would have to plant his ministry in Rome and then to go into the furthermost reaches of the world from a place like Rome. He, he shares his anticipation, he shares his joy, he shares his expectation, and then he begins to lay out his case that he is going to unpack in these first three chapters. And he starts in, in Romans 1, verse 18, and it's not going to come up on the screen, I'm just going to read it, and I'm going to let Paul state his own case. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. 
For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Romans chapter 1, Paul's addressing this idea that these unrighteous people in in their world, these Gentiles, these who were outside of the covenant fellowship of God, suppressed the truth about who God was and and exchanged the truth of God for a lie and began to worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. And because of that, they are separated from the realities of the presence and covenant blessing of God and the relationship with God that they were created to have. And Paul is writing this, and as the church is reading this, there's a handful of people probably in the church who have a, a historically Jewish background who are cheering and saying, yes, you got it, Paul. Those guys, those guys, sinners, exchanged the truth of who you are for a lie and worshiped this crazy bird over here thinking that it would bring blessing upon something in their life. Those guys. Sinners. Chapter 2, Paul turns his gaze just to make sure everything stays straight. And in chapter 2, he turns his gaze to the church. He turns his gaze to the the Jewish people, the covenant people of God. And I won't read the whole thing, but chapter 2, verse 1, he says, Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in the passing of judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. And from that verse forward in chapter 2, Paul begins to condemn the people of God who had the law of God from the beginning of the time of God drawing his people to himself. And he gets to verse 23, and he says, You, talking to the church, who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles, those in chapter 1, because of you. So Paul's saying here in the first two chapters, look, everybody, whether a Gentile or a Jew, whether in the church or not in the church, because of the nature of sin, all of you have been separated from the realities of who God is. And in fact, for you, the Jew, in chapter 2, the church, it's worse. Because you actually had the law of God. You actually had the covenant presence of God in your midst and his word given to you from the prophets and the priests. And you... Though you boast in the law, though you boast in all of these things, you blaspheme the name of God and the glory of God amongst the people because you do not do the very thing you boast in. So he keeps going, gets to chapter three. And now his net's gonna get cast wider. And he's setting up this reality. The greatest problem that we have to deal with, the greatest problem that we have to face is actually God himself. And the best answer, most unfathomable answer to the problem that we face is actually God himself. But to get to the place where we can treasure that, and we can treasure that in the richness and the unsearchableness of that thing, we've got to understand that the problem that we actually face. And so Paul moves on into chapter 3, and he says, then what advantage has the Jew, or, or what value is circumcision? But down to verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. 
Everybody is under sin. Listen to what he says. None is righteous. No, not one. In the Greek, that means none. It's not a tricky translation. None means none. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Let me say a few things before we roll into chapter 3, verse 19 through verses 26, and begin to, by God's grace, have our breath taken away by the way that God deals with the greatest problem that we ever face and gives us these unsearchable riches that are ours to hold on to. Let me say a few things about what Paul is saying in these first three chapters to get to where we're going in these next few verses. One, all of us, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how long you've been in the church, what familiarity you have with the church, how much you read your Bible, how much you don't read your Bible, whether you own a Bible, no matter what you've done, all of us fail to acknowledge the realities of our sin. That's just fact. We are all keen at identifying the realities of sin in other people's life and conveniently forgetful about the realities of sin in our own life. And so to better understand what Paul's saying so that we don't do what is natural to us, which is to sit into church and listen to someone like me stand up here and read the Bible and listen to what is being said and go, hmm, my mom, she needs to hear this. I wonder if, I wonder if they record this because, you know, my mom needs to hear this. You know, before you sit there and listen to me talk about the realities of the fact that we are all by nature under sin and separated from the realities of God, before you define that by some particular act that you don't particularly do, that you recognize other people doing, and before you listen to me and hear this for someone else to actually hear or to gather some kind of information that you can give to someone else, I want you to listen to it for yourself. Paul has said that no one, no one is righteous before God. And that all have fallen under the weight and the curse and the realities of sin. And sin is not a list of things that you don't do and other people do. Sin by nature in the Bible, we talk about it week in and week out because we're so hard-headed when it comes to this, is not just a list of actions that we're not supposed to do. Sin is holistic and comprehensive and gets into the thoughts of our mind, the motivations in our hearts, and the behaviors and actions that we live out of the impulse and compulsion that is born in our heart. Sin is a comprehensive, holistic condition that we find ourselves in. It is not something that we have fallen into, and it is not something that we do sometimes and don't do other times. It is the condition that we find ourselves in when we are born into this world. And all of us, I don't care who you are, you can admit it or not, you sit here and you do not conceive rightly the reality of your sin before God, but you conveniently forget that and are very clear about everyone else's problem. And I want you to listen to what Paul is saying very clearly, 
Because if we do not listen to what he is saying and we do not grasp the reality of our position before God because of the condition of our souls in sin, what Paul is going to say in the next chapter, which is arguably the greatest chapter in the entire Bible, more theologians and men of historical renown have said that the next verses that we are going to read and talk about this morning are the greatest paragraph in the entire Bible. And if it is going to be of any value to us, if it is going to be any value to you, and if it is going to transform how you understand who you are and how that causes you to live the life that God has put you in, you are going to have to understand what Paul has just said, and that's that none of us, none of us, apart from what he's about to talk about, have solved the reality of the problem that we face before God. We are all sinful. There is no graduated scale of sinfulness. I mean, if you sit here and you don't listen to my sermon or listen to someone read the Bible for someone else, you sit there at least in your brain thinking, well, I know that I struggle with this. I know that sometimes I speak this way. I know that sometimes I have a problem with this, but I don't do that. I don't do that. I got five people in my brain who do that, and those people I'm not like. Those people are who he's talking about when he reads this Romans chapter 3 under the the wrath and the judgment of God and separated from God and and unrighteous and sinful. No, no. I'm really good. I struggle with this. But those people, those people, this is who he's talking about. So let me listen and get in my brain all the people that I know are going to really need this. It's not what Paul's talking about. It's not what he's saying. There is no graduated scale of sinfulness. The standard by which we measure ourselves is God himself. The holiness of God is the standard by which we measure ourselves in our understanding of sinfulness and holiness before a righteous God. God is the standard. Therefore, I don't care what you've done, what you do, what you struggle with, what you have struggled with, what you haven't struggled with, who you know and who you don't know, it doesn't matter to me. No one in here is exalted in my eyes and is in some way better or or worse than anyone else. None of you will ever disillusion me. I am far from illusioned about who you really are because the Bible has declared that apart from God, you are as dead in sin as I am and under the just judgment of God. I don't care what you've done. It it doesn't matter to me. It doesn't make you better or worse than me. This is where we are. And the Western mind, the American mind, the democratic mind sees sin and sees a relationship with God the same way it sees the democratic process by which we try to live our lives under in this country. And sin is not democratic. It is not democratic. It is a condition by which we have found ourselves in. It is a condition that we are born in, and that condition levels everything. It levels everybody. Romans 1 through 3 say, listen, Listen, before you get too excited about what I'm about to say for somebody else, you need to listen to it for yourself. I want you to treasure what I'm about to tell you about who God is and what he has done, and you've got to get this right. This is who you are before God, and this is the greatest problem you will ever face. Because the reality is, we'll get there in a minute, the character of God and the holiness of God and the righteousness of God and the justice of God and the mercy of God and the love of God and all of the realities of the characteristics and attributes of who God is demand that a holy and righteous God demand justice and exact justice upon a sinful, sinful, rebellious creation. So the greatest problem that you face is the reality of the condition of sin that you find yourself in before God 
because the holiness and righteousness of God demand that your sin, your rebellion, your ingratitude towards who he is and what he has done for you be, be judged. And what in the world are you going to do about that? I mean, really, seriously, what in the world are you going to do about that? He knows everything. He made everything. He sees everything. Where are you going to go? Where are you going to go? Like when you're 14, you could crawl out of your parents' window and maybe run down the street and jump on a bike or jump in a car and run somewhere to a friend's house and get away for a day or two. Where are you going to go from God? Seriously. What, where are you going to go? Romans 3.19. I, I, I like actually how my Bible actually says it. I didn't do the slides again. Romans 3.19 says, but now. We know. As Ray always says when Ray is up here, there is no greater but in the Bible than God's. When God inserts his, his but into the Bible, you need to pay attention. Romans 3.19 goes like this, but that's the reality. You, you've got to get this reality. This is where it is, but. Oh, look at that. Technology. <laughs> Technology. Now, listen, now, for some of you, they didn't do that when they wrote the Bible. I mean, they weren't, they weren't, you know, that's a good idea. Let's write that in there. That's not how that worked. That's just 21st century. But now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. We stand before God, convicted and guilty. And there's nothing that we can do to fix that or change that. Verse 21. But now, but now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. Listen to this. There is no distinction. That's what Paul is arguing in the first two and a half chapters. There is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show that God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. There are a whole handful of riches, of treasures in this passage that we are going to unpack in the weeks to come and we're going to zero down into one word, but we've actually got to get there. Look at what he's saying. We'll, we'll go back and I'm going to read it slow. I just lost a, another marker in my Bible, but I'm going to read it slow and we're going, to, we're going to hit some of these and I want you to listen to this. Verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. What in the world is he talking about? You've got to hear this if you're going to understand and really begin to grasp and value the treasure of what he's about to say here in just a minute. The righteousness of God sounds like an adjective, doesn't it? When you read this, you hear righteousness of God and you think descriptive word about who God is and his nature and his character, don't you? That's not what this is actually saying. What this is actually saying, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested. The phrasing of the righteousness of God in the Bible is actually an action statement. It's not actually an adjective to describe something about God. It's actually a statement describing what God has done. 
What God has done that Paul is about to explain reveals the righteousness of God in what he has done. We think about this and we hear this little adjective. This is actually an action word that means this. Here's the best definition I've got. The righteousness of God in Romans 3 is God acting himself to put us right. What Paul is saying is that the righteousness of God, the character of God, has been revealed by this. God takes action upon himself to act to put us right with himself all by himself. The righteousness of God, the greatness of God is manifest and made known, revealed in this. God acts to make us right before him without anything of our own. So the righteousness of God is God acting by himself to solve the greatest problem that we have with himself. This is unbelievable. I mean, listen to how they would read this and hear this if you actually listen. You are sinful apart from God. There is nothing that you can do to reconcile yourselves to God and to pay the price for what your sin deserves in the eyes of a righteous and holy God. But the righteousness, the justice, the glory of God is revealed in this. He acts on your behalf to reconcile your problem with him for you. Here here it is. It's going to be revealed. This is the grand glory of God. This is the narrowing the distance of majesty that we talked about last week. The non-divorcing the promises from the reality of God. God acts on his own to put you right with him. Your greatest problem is you're standing before him and your relationship with him. And there's nothing that you can do about it. But God, his glory is made known in this. He acts on your behalf to reconcile you to himself without anything of your own. The righteousness of God is made known in this. What's he done? What has he done? What has he done to reveal this? Let's keep reading and we'll, boy, I want to, okay, let's keep reading. The righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. Here's one of those riches that we're going to unpack in the coming weeks justified what has God done to reveal his glory and his righteousness in a sinful fallen broken world by acting for a sinful fallen rebellious man to reconcile sinful humans back to himself that his glory and greatness might be revealed he's justified you when you couldn't justify yourself God did not look at you standing before him guilty of the sin that that you have committed in his eyes and the the treason, as John Piper says, the cosmic treason that your sin has committed before God. He doesn't look at you and say, not guilty. In fact, he actually looks at you and pronounces you guilty. But the punishment for your sin is taken on by his son. And so now that when God looks at you, he actually sees you through the lens of the cross and through the righteousness of Jesus and declares you righteous. Not not guilty of your sin, righteous because of what he has done, how his righteousness was manifest in Jesus. We're going to spend a week talking about that, so I'll I'll keep going. So what does God do to make his, his glory known, his righteousness known? He justifies you when you had nothing in yourself to justify yourself. And he justifies you by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Redemption, another one of these unbelievable treasures that is ours in our life that will change the way we live if we can ever grasp it. If justification is a legal word, redemption is a, is a commercial word, and it actually has the roots in the idea back in the Old Testament that, that it's spoken of that God would redeem his people. 
his people Israel, the, the Jewish people in the Old Testament from their slavery in Egypt and then ultimately again their slavery in Babylonia when they were captured by the Babylonian Empire, that God actually inserted himself on their behalf to redeem them from the slavery that they found themselves in, to set them free to worship him as his people, that God actually acted on their behalf to overcome their enemies and to free them from the slavery they found themselves in. And what we're going to see in a couple of weeks, that God, to reveal his glory and his righteousness to be made known, not only justifies us when we are guilty, but he actually redeems us from the slavery that our souls find themselves in to sin. Now, because of the condition that we're all in, that Paul's laid out for chapters, the condition we find ourselves in that we can't do anything about finds our souls and our wills and our desires in bondage to sin that there's nothing in us that wants to please God and God, instead of looking at us as his enemies who have committed treason against him and putting us away, actually pursues us in love and overcomes our sin, overcomes our sinful nature, releases us from the bondage of sin that we could worship him and know him, be reconciled to him. Unbelievable. We're going to spend a week on that one too. But here's the one we're going to actually talk about a little bit more this morning. And there's two sides to this coin. And it's one that I think we forget a lot. So we're justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Now, some of your Bibles probably don't say propitiation. Some of your Bibles probably say atoning sacrifice if you have an NIV. But if you actually look at the footnote of your NIV, there will actually be a note about there about the atoning sacrifice actually defining it as a propitiation. And here's what a propitiation is. Let me give you a definition. I should have put it up there for you. I'm sorry. Propitiation, the best definition that I found for it is this. It is the turning away or the satisfaction or exhaustion of God's wrath against sin. Propitiation is a sacrifice or an act that exhausts the wrath of God against sin. Here is something that I think in, in mind and in, in mental assent we can all hold on to, but in practical realities when we think about what God has done and how it changes who we are, this idea of propitiation is something that we, that we tend to forget that we tend to overlook, that we tend to, to minimize what it took God to satisfy his justice and his holiness. You see, like we said earlier, the greatest problem that you have is God. The greatest problem that God faces in all the universe is really himself. It's really himself. It's not your sin. Because here's the reality. He is a holy and righteous and just and merciful and loving God. And we, as his creation, created in his image, have turned our backs to who he is and rejected his care and his provision and his love over us and sought to be him for ourselves and, and to decide for ourselves what is best and, and what is right. And because he is holy and because he is righteous and because he is just, he, he can't overlook the realities of, of sin and rebellion. What kind of God would he actually be? He certainly wouldn't be worth worshiping. I mean, he might be some kind of God that can fit in some kind of pantheon of deities with all the other gods, but he certainly wouldn't be worth your worship. If he is holy and he's righteous and he's just, but he can look down at his creation and he can look down at humanity, turning their fists up at him and their backs to him and rejecting who he is and saying, oh, you know, Darfur, Nazi concentration camps. Robert's pride, Robert's rebellion, no big deal. There's a rug. I'll sweep it under there. What kind of God would he really be? What kind of God would he really be? His holiness must not be that great. His righteousness must not be that all-consuming. 
And so the reality of the problem that you face and that God faces is that God has to figure out what in the world do we do to reconcile ourselves to a holy and righteous God and a rebellious and, and sinful creation. And this has been the problem all along. This has been the problem from the beginning. And this idea of propitiation is an idea that was understood throughout the entire first century, Gentiles and Jews alike. See, the Gentiles believed that if they could make a certain sacrifice to a particular God, depending upon what it is they were after, they would appease that God's anger or frustration with them. And if they could make that God happy and and appease that God's anger and try to do whatever that God wanted, then he might not curse their crops. Their, their, their wives might have lots of kids. Whatever it was they were worried about, they would make propitiation by offering a sacrifice to this God in hopes that it would take away his, his anger. And the Hebrews, the, the Jews, God's people, they weren't unfamiliar with this. From the very beginning, God began to deal with the reality of what does a holy and righteous God do to reconcile a sinful humanity and creation back to himself because his holiness cannot overlook the sin and his justice must be satisfied. And so, in the Old Testament, in books like Leviticus, where, where Bible reading plans go to die, you find, they don't, you, you know they do. You know they do. Everybody in here started one of those things and hit Leviticus and said, eh, I don't know, I'll come back to it. Let me flip over to Matthew. Let me come back to it. You find that in, in great, I mean, unbelievable, unbelievable detailed workings of God in showing his people how he would begin to reconcile himself to them and what it would take for them to be reconciled to him. How his justice would be satisfied. He set up this unbelievably elaborate sacrificial system where day after day after day, men and women would come to the tabernacle and come to the temple bringing sacrifices depending upon what guilt it was they were coming to confess or what festival or feast it was that they were commanded to celebrate. And they would come to the tabernacle and the temple and they would stand before the priest and they would confess their sins and the priest would open up the scrolls and open up the, the scrolls of the law of God and say, yep, that one, that one, that one, that one. And each one, depending upon what he was doing, demanded a particular sacrifice that God had outlined for that sin. And they would bring that sacrifice and the priest would take that sacrifice and depending upon what the sin was, he would, he would cut the throat of that animal or he would fillet that animal apart and depending upon what it was, we could go through the whole list. And there would be an innocent victim that would take the place of the sins of that man or that woman who would come to confess that before God and that sacrifice, that animal, would be what was called the propitiation offering, the offering that would satisfy the just wrath of God. And let me say this as I'm thinking about it when I'm talking about the wrath of God, when I say this. The wrath of God is not like my anger or your anger. The wrath of God is not some kind of capricious anger that flies off the handle when my son forgets to pick up his toys for the thousandth time. It's not me going, why can't you just pick those things up? Go get in your room. Go to your room. It's not a sinful, capricious anger that has no long-suffering or forbearance. The wrath of God is his committed stance towards sin. The wrath of God is his holiness compelling his justice. 
The wrath of God is not a capricious anger like yours and mine. He's not up there in heaven waiting for us to do something so that he can hit us on the back with his hand and knock us into tomorrow and beat us up and condemn us and find our souls and our consciences full of guilt and weight, wondering when the next time he's just going to flick us out of his presence is. The, the wrath of God is not, it's not like our anger. It's not like your anger. It's not like my anger. The wrath of God is... God's committed justice towards sin. And so for century after century after century, God's people would make the trip to the tabernacle of the temple. And as they would offer these sacrifices and confess their sin and watch the throat slit and the blood pour, year after year after year, gallon after gallon after gallon, God was saying something. There was something that God intended to say to them, to show to them, to weave into their conscience, to burn into their soul. And it was the reality of the weight and the sinfulness of sin in light of the holiness of God and what it would take to make that sin right. And it was never more clear than in Leviticus chapter 16. And you don't have to go there, I'll tell you. On this, this one particular feast that they would celebrate called the Day of Atonement, when the people of Israel would come and collectively, the high priest, he, he would go through this unbelievably elaborate ritual of cleansing and purification and repentance upon himself. And then he would take these two goats and he would take this first goat and he would lay his hands on it and he would confess the sins of the people and he would take that goat into the tabernacle and he would sacrifice that goat and he would take some of the blood of that goat into the Holy of Holies, the place he only went one time a year and only he was allowed to go. If anyone else entered that place at any time, or if he entered it without purification, the way that God had called him to be purified, he would die on the spot. And they actually tied a rope to him and had pomegranates at the bottom of his tunic so that if they heard him stop walking and stop shaking, they would know he was dead and they'd yank him out. And all the people of Israel would be outside the tabernacle in the tent of meeting waiting. The high priest had come and he had confessed the sins of the people and he had sacrificed his goat and he had gone into the Holy of Holies where the presence of God was to sprinkle this sacrificial propitiatory blood on the offering to satisfy the justice of God that God would take the sins of the people and carry his justice forward and not condemn them and pour out his just wrath on them at that moment and they would wait. What would happen? And he would return and he would come back out and the people would see that God had accepted the sacrifice. And for a time, his justice, his justice would be carried over. They would be free from the just wrath of God for their sin on this day of atonement, this day of propitiation. See, here's, here's the thing. I was listening to somebody talk about this recently, and I want, you to, I want you to hear what they said. They said it a whole lot better than I ever could. Actually, I'm not going to do that. Here's the glory behind this, because I want you to see this, because I don't want time to run out. Here's what I want you to see. What's the beauty behind this whole propitiation? 1 John chapter 4, is that up there? I want you to see this. God, for all of time, set in place something that he would do to show his people how he would deal with the greatest problem they would ever face, their sinfulness in spite of his holiness and the sacrifice that it would take to make right and to satisfy the justice of his holiness in spite of their sin. He gave them this picture pointing towards what he would do that Paul was talking about in Romans 3 in Christ when God himself would come in Jesus and no longer would we take goats and bulls and pigeons into the altar and sacrifice them anymore, but God himself would become the propitiation 
propitiation, the sacrifice that would take away the wrath of God, that would satisfy the justice of God for our sins, that we would no longer find ourselves under the just wrath of God because of who we are and the conditions of our souls. And this, now listen to this, 1 John 4, I'll just read it up there. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. You want to know what difference? We're going to talk about what difference propitiation makes and how you understand who you are and how you live your life. Every single one of you wrestles at some point during the week, whether it's daily, weekly, monthly, or something, with whether or not God actually loves you. And don't tell me you don't. At some point, at some place, when the lights go out and you're all by yourself, something in your conscience and in your soul begins to wrestle and you begin to wonder, does God, does God love me? Does he love me? What do I need to do? If I read more, if I, I pray more, if I do more at church, if I clean the biohazards out of the hallway for the kids on Sunday, if I, if, if I, whatever, what do I do? Does he love me? There is no more clear explanation of the love of God and no louder expression of, I love you, from the mouth of God in the Bible in 1 John 4. In this, the love of God was made manifest, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Here's love. Do you want to know if God loves you? Do you want to know if he loves you? Here is God saying how much he loves you. Here is God saying, I love you. It's not some sweaty palm, sentimental, sappy feeling that we wait for and that we conjure up an experience and then run to God and say, do you love me? I love you. Here's the love of God. Here is God's love for you. In this is love. Not that we've loved God. Not that we've done anything to earn it. Not that we have all the warm fuzzies towards him. Not that we do all the right things, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Here is God's love. He came and solved the greatest problem that we would ever face in all of eternity and did for us what we could not do for ourselves and laid himself down on that altar as a sacrifice, propitiating, exhausting satisfying the justice of God in the place of sin. You want to know how much God loves you? He took upon himself what was only yours because of your sin. He suffered the immense weight of the reality of sin in his body on the cross in your place. Unbelievable. You want to know if he loves you? Do do you love me? I I just feel funny. I I feel like we're, I, I don't know. Do you love me? Listen, I love you. I I didn't make you conjure up a feeling about me and then run after me, and when you chased me hard enough and did enough, I'd turn around and scoop you up into my arms and say, I love you, but don't ever do it again. He didn't do that. He's not waiting for you to figure out what you don't know and what you need to know and what you need to do. He's not doing that. Here's how much I love you. I'm coming and I'm solving for you the greatest problem that you will ever have, and I will be for you what you could not be for yourself, and I, in my only son, will absorb the just wrath that is solely due to you in his body on the cross. I will be your propitiation. You may no longer live anymore wondering if I love you, doubting how much I actually love you. I love you this much, and here's the beauty of this word. I did not know until this week. All the times I've studied this or read this, I did not know about this word. We talk a whole lot about the realities of God saving his people and kind of talking about how in this culture we tend to always focus on what God has done for me. I'm God's greatest gift. God loves me so much that he did this to the point where the whole gospel revolves around ourselves and we become really selfish about the realities of who God is. 
And so we talk a whole lot about what God has done for his people and the nature of what God has done for the community of the church. This word propitiation, it's singular and personal. It's singular and personal. Last week when we talked about the love of God being eternal love before all of time, before anything that is, is, he loved you. He knew you. Propitiation, I love you. I love you. I have done for you what you could not do for yourself. I have come and I have taken the just wrath that is solely due to your sin on my body for you. I love you. Not y'all. You. You. Hebrews chapter 10. I want to do this because you got to see what difference this makes. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 18. You don't have to turn there. Paul unpacks in Hebrews 8, 9, and 10 the realities of God's sacrifice in our place on the cross. And he comes to verse 18 in chapter 10, and he says this, where there is forgiveness of these, where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. What difference does it make? What difference does understanding the realities of propitiation make? What difference does a word like that make on how you live your life? Listen to this. Where there is forgiveness of these, where your sins have been forgiven, where you have come and have accepted by faith the realities of what God has done on your behalf on the cross and have received the forgiveness of God and the just wrath of God has been taken off of you and has been put squarely onto Jesus, where forgiveness of these is present, there are no more sacrifices. There are no more sacrifices. And you say, sure, I understand that. You're not going to bring out goats. Some of you who are new are probably happy about that. We're not going to bring out snakes either. Some of you come from places where we do that. We're not going to bring out snakes. And you think, so what? Listen, where there's forgiveness of sin, where there is an understanding and a treasuring the realities of the propitiation of God on your behalf, there are no more sacrifices. No more sacrifices. Listen to this. This. I'm going to read you this now. I was listening to a sermon about this recently. And this is, I've never heard it captured brilliantly. Where there's forgiveness, there's no longer an offering for sin. What difference does that make? It's over. You no longer have to bring anything to my altar, Jesus says. It's over. But we have a tendency to go, well, what about my sins? What about my struggles? I'm so messed up, and, and I'm just, I want to do this, and I want to stop doing that, and I want to do this. And Jesus sits back and says, it's already paid for. It's already paid for. I'm not accepting any more offerings. It's over. And yet many of us keep dragging things to his altar and saying, I'm going to do this for you, and I'm going to do this for you, and I'm, I'm hoping to plead this pleases you, and I'm going to start doing things this way, and I'll quit doing this, and I'll start doing this. Just don't be angry at me anymore. And we keep laying these things down on his altar, and Jesus keeps saying, what is all this stuff? What is all this stuff you keep bringing me? You're cluttering up my altar. What is this junk? And the rest of us just keep saying, but you've got to be upset with me. I keep blowing it here and I keep blowing it here and I keep doing this and I can't shake this feeling that's haunting me anymore. And Jesus keeps saying, what are you talking about? I'm not taking offerings anymore. What about all my failures? What about all my sins? What about all my struggles? Yeah, I know you already said that, 
but I keep struggling with what's going on in my soul. And Jesus says it's paid for. I'm God and everything is mine. Your sin had to be punished, so I've killed you. I've killed you in my son, and now when I see you, I see my son, perfect, spotless, and radiant. So take your petty little good behavior and get it off my altar, because this altar is covered with the blood of Christ that washes away the sins of man. What difference does propitiation make? Where there is forgiveness of sins, there is no more need for sacrifice. Take your junk that you try to impress God with and get it off of his altar. You realize that when we continue to think that we have to please God to keep his anger from us, when we've accepted the forgiveness of God that comes from Christ, and we keep saying, I'll do this and I'll do this, don't be angry and take this and and, and reconcile me here, we are making a mockery of what he's done. We are saying, no, 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 what you did wasn't good enough. And he's saying, listen to me, hard-headed. It's done. It's done. There is no more sacrifice needed where there has been forgiveness of sin. If you could begin to treasure this, if this could really begin to become something that you begin to cling to, if you could really begin to lay there at night and deal with the, the accusations that you would begin to hear in your brain and the, re, the voices and the realities telling you what a, what a knucklehead and what a scoundrel you are, you can begin to say, yeah, 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 you, you, you're probably right. I, I really am that bad. Paul's right, I, I really am that sinful. That really is my condition. But God has done for me what I could never do for myself. So while your accusation of me may be right, his work for me covers it all. And I no longer need those accusations to drive me back to Jesus to try to appease his wrath against me because it's done. He's forgiven me. Unbelievable kindness and freedom that comes in understanding what God has done for us on the cross called propitiation. God has solved the greatest problem that we will ever face, which is himself. And he has done it by taking our place himself to satisfy himself, that he might be glorified and we might receive the joy that comes from being reconciled to God and living the life that we were created to live. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. I love what, could you put First John back up there? Is that, you have it? Oh, I didn't put it on there. First John, verse 11 is, is great. So what difference? You begin to treasure this. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. What difference does it make? You begin to accept the, the realities of your sinfulness before God, but his work before you on the cross and the propitiation of his wrath from you. You can begin to look and say, now, the grace that's been poured out to me, oh, it doesn't keep me from running away from God. Instead of recognizing my sinfulness and running away from God and trying to get away from him, I'm afraid that he's angry. I can recognize that that is my sinfulness and I have sinned and I can come to God because he has mitigated or exhausted God's wrath on himself, on Jesus, and I can come to him in boldness and confess my sin and receive the forgiveness of God and the cleansing of God and that can begin to be the the way in which I understand and love other people. Oh, to be the people of God who treasure the work of God on our behalf in the gospel, and that begins to shape and compel the way we love other people. 
I mean, what if the realities and the immensity and the depth of this grace that God has shown us and the work that he's shown us in something as simple but as grand as propitiation begins to shape the way we love other people? Think about those people. Whatever those people are for you. I don't know what cause they're a part of or what sin makes you the angriest about them. Whatever it is, there's a people that you hope don't show up here. Seriously, don't lie. I'll say it for you. There is a people that everybody has they hope doesn't show up here. I mean, we'll talk about going out amongst the city and loving the city and seeing people come to be transformed by the gospel and and to be a place that people could come and to learn about the gospel, but just not, just not those people, whatever they might be. What if, what if you began to see yourself the way that God sees you and recognize what he has done for you to solve the greatest problem that you would ever have? And that grace began to shape the way that you began to see yourselves and see other people and began to love other people. I mean, this is the working out of the gospel. This is the working out of the gospel, not only in ourselves, vertically between God, but horizontally between others. Now we look at one another, there's nothing you can do. And there's nothing you can do that can repel me. Uh, what, look, there's no, you cannot say anything to me that I can say disqualifies you from the grace of God and the cross of Christ and the propitiation that God worked out for you. You can't do it. You can't do it. And because of that, I'm no better than you. I'm no better than you. Uh, There's nothing about me, even being a pastor, that exalts me to any degree over anyone else in here. And if we can begin to see other people and see ourselves through the gospel and begin to understand how something like propitiation shapes the way we relate to God, relates to the life we live, relates to the people that we love and live with, you want to be a people or a church that displays the glory and the character and the manifold wisdom of God? That's it. That's it. You want to see the relationships you have with your friends and your family, the difficult ones transformed? Begin to see yourself as God saw you before he gave himself up for you on the cross and see yourself now as he sees you on the backside of it. Let that shape how you relate to that person. You want to see that change? You want 10 steps to love somebody? Recognize who you are and what God has done to love you and let that shape how you relate to other people. This is what God has done. This is what he has done on our behalf. Oh, that we would be a people that would begin to treasure this, would begin to grasp this, would begin to cling to this, would begin to allow this to work its way into our conscience, brand our soul, and be compelled to live in in light of it and in response to it. There was more that we could understand, but we're not going to, to be able to get to it. But here's what I want. I want you to wrestle. I want you to wrestle with the problem. I want you to see the realities of the problem that God faced because of our sin. I want you to wrestle with what that was like for a holy and a righteous and a just God. I want you to wrestle with the realities of your place before him outside of what he has done on the cross. Oh, and and my prayer, and I will continue to pray this for you and I'll pray it for me is as we begin to see what Paul was saying and how the righteousness of God was revealed, how God revealed his glory to us in this one case by making Jesus be our sacrificial propitiation, 
that he himself took his wrath on himself away from us that we could be reconciled to God, my prayer is that begins to take your breath away because it should. It should. And you know what? More often than not, it doesn't. So my prayer for you, my prayer for us, my prayer for the church, my prayer and my hope for the future is that we begin to be taken back and our breath taken away at the grandeur of what God has done and that we can begin to treasure it to such a degree that we cling to it with all that we are, for all that we are, for all that we will be, and it begins to shape the way that we live, the way that we love, the way that we serve, the way that we worship, and that God would be made known in our life, in our family, in our places of business, that he would be glorified, and as Paul said, his righteousness his righteousness revealed. Let me, uh, let me pray for us this morning. Father, thank you for your, your infinite wisdom. Your infinite wisdom that, that did not compromise your justice. It did not compromise your holiness. It did not compromise your mercy. It did not compromise your love. When you ordained a plan to rescue rebellious sinners like myself and to reconcile us to yourself. In no way was your glory ever compromised. But on the cross, your sacrifice on our behalf has become the greatest picture and revelation of your character and your nature that we will ever know. Lord, my prayer is that by your spirit you you till up the ground in our soul and in our mind and in our heart to be moved by, to be moved by the greatness and the glory of what you've done. So often, God, it falls on, on deaf ears and hard hearts. We've heard it all before. We've heard the stories before. We've been in church for so long. God, your spirit can make alive what, what seems so familiar. Your spirit can make new what seems so, so old. And so, God, I ask that you make the realities of your glory alive in our hearts. Make it alive in our souls. Make it alive in our spirits. And, Lord, may it draw us to you, away from ourselves, to you, and let it take our breath away. Let it take our breath away. We ask these things in the name of your precious Son who gave himself up for us, who became the propitiation of for us in our place, who did for us what we could not do for ourselves. We ask these things for his glory, in his name. Amen.